Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from five-star app Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Karpis, co-founder of Meditation Studio and your host on Untangle. Join us each week as we introduce you to authors, experts, and thought leaders who share their stories on how meditation and mindfulness practices have the power to change our lives. To kickstart the new year, if you haven't already, you can download the Meditation Studio app in the App Store, where you'll find our new motivation collection with meditations designed to help you create new habits and make all your 2019 dreams come true. Later in January, you'll enjoy lots of new original music tracks to add to new deep sleep meditations and meditations for your kiddos. Our app is like having a little inspirational coach in your pocket when you're facing any challenge. If you have a minute, will you give us a review on the app and the podcast? It helps a lot to get the word out. And any comments for us, reach out at founders at meditationstudioapp.com. Today, I'm excited to have a brand new interview with fan favorite, Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a psychologist and best-selling author of several books, including Hardwiring Happiness, The New Brain Science of Contentment, Calm, and Confidence. I invited Rick to come on Untangle to share his top five ways to be happier in 2019. Trust me when I say these are good. I personally learn so much from Rick each time he joins us, and I'm excited to share these juicy points. He also provided some tools for boosting motivation and bonus, some ways we can be more present in our intimate relationships. There are so many gems in this interview that can help us build our capacity to be happier overall. For more on Rick, go to his website, rickhanson.net. Check out his Foundations of Wellbeing course, which begins in January and lasts all year. Now, here's Rick. Rick, it is so great to have you back on Untangle today. Thank you so much for being here. Patricia, I'm grateful. And honestly, I was reflecting earlier about the name of your show, Untangled, and how essential that is to being happier and more effective and suffering less. And actually, as you may know yourself and other listeners do, the Buddha 2,500 years ago often used the language of disentangling and separating out the threads in the tapestry of experience and not being so bound to the kinds of things that make us tense and contracted and make us suffer and hurt other people. I love the name. Yay. I wanted to have you back on the show for several reasons. Not the least is you are our most popular guest, but also because when we go towards a new year, it's a new beginning. And I think people are more open to hearing ideas about how they can be happier. And so I wanted to really focus this on how we can all be happier in 2019. Maybe we can start with what are the top five Mm. tools or even habits you might recommend to Mm. kind of increase our levels of happiness? That's a great question because it's both right at the practical feet on the ground aspect of personal practice moment to moment, which is where we have the most influence. And it also opens up to some really, I think, profound wisdom type themes. So Top five. Well, we all have lists for the new year. Okay, it's really <laughs> good that you're limiting me to five. Uh, I can think of two right off the top. First is, based on a lot of research, as well as personal observation, the advice would be to deliberately pull out of the ruminator. In other words, to disengage from unproductive negative preoccupations. It's one thing to have sadness flow through or to have hurt flow through, but it's a very different thing to become preoccupied and to keep looping multiple times around the track. So if I were to suggest one thing, it would be to make a resolution. I think the same thought again and again, that's fine. But 10 is enough. In other words, make a resolution that you say to yourself, I'll think about things to the extent that they're useful to think about them. But otherwise, I'll watch that habit of negative preoccupations of just looping through the same concerns, rehashing the same conversations. And I'm going to take a stand inside my own mind to interrupt that. I'm just not going to let myself do that as soon as I notice I'm doing it. So that would be my first one. What do you think about that one? I love that one, but I have a question about it because I think that is, it's a perfect number one, but it's also the absolute 
hardest thing to actually do for any of us that have spent time in a negative loop, which I think is almost everyone. It's hard. I can see intellectually how you might be able to stop your brain from looping and being preoccupied with that negative thought. But how you actually stop it is a totally different thing. Now, do we replace it with a positive thought? What do we do to actually... It's a great question. It's very fundamental. Yeah. So now I'm doing like specifics under the heading of the first thing. First, as you well know from what you do for a living, build up general capacities for mindfulness, inner peace, basic well-being. So like grow the planets inside your own mind whose gravitational force starts drawing you in a better direction naturally. That's something people can do routinely, including through using your programs, your app, and so forth. In other words, build up mindfulness and the capacity to recognize when you're getting caught up in a loop. And related capacities like self-compassion, so the general capacities, really important to build up. That'll serve you well, and you can do that throughout your day, and it will have so many other rewards. Second... I think as a longtime therapist and also someone who's had practice since 1974, actually before then, there's a place for being strong inside your mind where you basically say no in much the same way that you would disengage from an interaction with someone at work or in your life who's being a jerk or there's just no payoff. You'd exit. You would make a willed decision to disengage because there's no gain for you there and you don't want the pain. And there's a place inside where you just observe I'm thinking about this thing. I'm resentful about this. I'm worried about it. I feel preoccupied and hurt about it, whatever it might be. I'm not getting any value here. There's just pain. I don't want to hang out here and to make a willed decision there. And I think sometimes we go soft on ourselves or kind of soft maybe on others that we're working with, especially in the territory of positive psychology. And I think there's a place for old school virtues of willfulness and determination and a kind of muscularity inside yourself with the feeling of healthy entitlement. No, I don't have to keep feeding that voice inside my head. It might keep muttering away vaguely in the background, but I don't have to identify with it. I can pull out. I think that's really good. You want to hear a third one that's about a really neat way your brain works? Yes, absolutely. Neurologically, to simplify complicated stuff, but there's a key point here. When we're caught up in these internal, I call them mini movies, you're in a rumination loop, you're preoccupied, you're thinking about something negatively, your mind is wandering to a negative place that is not productive. Mostly what's happening in your brain or keeping this happening in your brain is you're engaging parts of your cortex that are on the very top of your head. You can tap your head if you want in the middle, the midline. Imagine a line going from your forehead all the way kind of straight back. And you're especially involved in the rearward parts of that midline cortical system, the so-called default mode network. You're kind of drawn in there. And that's a part of the brain that evolved over the last several million years in really useful ways to help our ancestors imagine different possibilities and evaluate them and learn from their mistakes, plan for the future. It's really useful. On the other hand, in modern life, we tend to clock way too much time inside the simulator or the ruminator. So that midline cortical system is deactivated when we come into the present moment or take a holistic panoramic view of our life or literally our body as a whole or our physical environment as a whole and thereby activate networks on the sides of the brain, especially the right side for right-handed people because the right hemisphere for right-handed people is very involved in holistic gestalt processing. So it's kind of a very cool method and you can watch it work in real time. Let's say you're worried about something, you're preoccupied with it. Take a moment, a minute if you can, or just simply a single breath and be aware of your body as a whole as you breathe. That will naturally reduce activity in those midline systems that are the basis for negative preoccupations and increase activity in those networks on the side of the brain, quote unquote, lateral networks and will bring you into the present and also reduce that kind of sense of self-preoccupation, me and I, that tend to get very wrapped up in rumination and anxiety and resentment and so forth. So that's a really neat hack. And you can train in general, as people are in your programs, for example, train in general in mindfulness programs that come into the present moment, feel the body as a whole, soften and widen your view. And that will naturally 
increase lateral network activation and decrease midline default mode activation and help you feel much more of a sense of kind of calm well-being in the present. Those are such great practices. Okay, so back to the five tools or habits. Thank you for digging down on the disengaging from unproductive negativity that we might be preoccupied with. I think that's an awesome number one. So what would be number two? Yeah, number two is, I would just summarize it as let it flow. Let the feelings flow, let experience flow. It's such obvious advice. Any kind of mindfulness teacher gives it. And yet it's really, really true. Does it mean like don't get stuck on it? In effect, I'm summarizing some research that says that in the pie chart of causes that make people miserable, probably the two largest slices of the pie in terms of psychological factors, internal factors that make people miserable, the two largest slices are one, negative rumination, and two, what's called low distress tolerance, incapacity to just sort of feel your feelings. And instead, people resist what they're feeling or get caught up in what the Buddha called the second darts of life, where we get reactive to what we're feeling rather than accepting ourselves and accepting our feelings and just letting and coming down into the primary immediacy of experience in body sensations and emotions and kind of let it flow, let it move. If we relax and just be increasingly willing to experience our experience, not resist it or chase after it, but just simply let it flow, letting in and letting go kind of continuously, that seemingly trite, simple advice is actually really profound as we move into the new year. It kind of goes to the notion that what makes us suffer is not our experience, but our resistance to experience or the friction between us and the world. And when I think about my own life and doing a lot of travel, when we resist other people, when we resist the fact that we're stuck in an airport and our flight's late, or we get all caught up in the fact that we only have one bar in our cell service, or we have poor Wi-Fi or whatever it might be, or we push down our own internal states, that's when things get worse. But in fact, if we just sort of relax and develop the capacities to do that, and let things kind of move through the big wide open spaces of awareness, then we don't suffer so much because there's not so much friction between us and our experience in the world. That makes a lot of sense, but I would imagine that it's a little bit harder for very sensitive people to do that. I know some people don't have trouble just letting go, laying low when something's happening or they're angry or they're very sad or super frustrated. And then there are people that kind of go back into the ruminating that you talk about. So I guess these are all interconnected. Well, it's great that you bring that up. And to be clear, to be able to let the feelings flow, to open up to your experience, we need to resource ourselves. I kind of came to this in the tail end of the 60s and the early 70s, human potential, and people would say, hey, Rick, you have to feel your feelings. And I would say, no way. Or if you people say a lot of mindfulness world, well, just open up to your feelings. Well, that's like opening a trapdoor to help. Right. And you're by yourself when you're meditating. Yeah. And so that can be a very distressing exactly. process. You're 100% right. So to do it, we need to resource ourselves in various ways. I think of the saying from Alcoholics Anonymous, I think, the mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Don't <laughs> go alone. Right. We need to have resources with us. We need to have the capacity to calm ourselves, to step back, to untangle from our experience, to disidentify from it, to witness it rather than being sucked Mm -hmm. into it. We need to grow those capacities. And the way to do that is to grow them, especially when you're not upset, grow them in general so that when the oatmeal hits the fan, you're more resourced inside. You've actually grown trait, trait, what's called ego strength in the healthy sense of that term. There's a kind of core of personal determination from which you witness the storms of your experience and in which you can take refuge inside yourself. You also internalize the feeling of attachment to others that you're cared about, your dog likes you, your friends are not perfect, but you're part of a group. You can soothe yourself. There's a quality of self-compassion. These are really key resources to develop in proportion to how intense and painful the feelings are. If the feelings are fairly mild, you don't need a lot of resources, but If a person is temperamentally sensitive, also, let's say, if they've had painful, even traumatic life experiences, there's a fair amount of intensity there. And don't underestimate the power, right, of that part of the force, the the intense stuff. So, yeah, people do need to resource themselves. But the more they resource themselves, the more they can open up 
and clear out the crud that's been tucked away in the basement over the years. And more and more, they feel untangled and unburdened right. uh, of that old material. And resourcing ourselves means some of these practices that you're talking about, mm-hmm. meditation, some of the brain mm-hmm. exercises that you've mentioned. Would that be what you're talking about in terms of resourcing ourselves? Or would that also include like therapy or any other kind of maybe helpful interaction? Mm-hmm. Yeah. By resourcing yourself, I mean growing resources inside, strengths and capabilities in general. And the main way most people are going to do that is kind of in everyday life, not in a formal setting. That said, I'm a therapist. I think there's a place, especially for certain things, to kind of get at them and to grow strengths inside and also release that old pain in the frame of coaching or therapy or counseling of some kind. That's really true. But what I'm talking about is kind of simple. Like, For example, can you calm your body when you start getting upset? What also, let's say, is your kind of baseline resting state of relaxation versus being tense in your body? Can you grow resting state relaxation? This is very down to earth. Can you grow the capacity to recognize in real time that you're getting upset within a few seconds of starting to get upset, certainly within a minute or two? You can grow that over time. Can you grow mindfulness? Can you grow the capacity to sort of open wide to whatever's moving through your awareness and let it flow without being swept away by it? Can you also grow self-compassion? Can you develop a kindness for yourself, a sweetness, a generosity, a forgiveness, a giving that is forgiving toward yourself? Yeah, these are the kinds of resources that I'm talking about. That is Awesome. Yeah. Okay, so number three, our third tool. Oh, uh, this is great because I'm doing an improv. So I've got <laughs> the first two, right? I'm looking for a catchy title for the first one, which is sort of like pull out of the negative, but I'm going to try to find a better way to put it. The other one is second is let it flow. Third is learn as you go. And that's something that so strikes me as profoundly important, which is this fundamental attitude. Carol Dweck talks about it as a growth mindset that mm-hmm. you approach each day as an opportunity for learning. And not book learning or memorizing a multiplication table learning, but emotional learning, spiritual learning, social learning, learning how to be more skillful with other people, learning how to be more skillful with your own mind, cultivating wholesome qualities, inner strengths, resources of various kinds, including love and compassion for other people. Each day is an opportunity to take in the good, help it sink in and internalize it a little bit every day so that when you go to bed, you're a little stronger, a little more resilient, a little wiser, a little more loving, a little happier than you were when you woke up in the morning. Learn as you go. I love that one. Yeah. And maybe I could two things about it. The first is looking back when I was a kid, I was so unhappy. I was neurotic. I was messed up. I was so contracted. When I look back at kind of the state of my mind as a teenager, and I had a pretty I call it a C minus childhood. It wasn't as bad as many people have had. And still for me, it was really pretty upsetting and impactful. And there was a turning point I can locate around age 15 in which I realized that, yes, I was miserable, but actually I didn't need to despair and feel hopeless because it was within my own power to learn something each day to develop myself in some way that I could actually go through each day and learn how to talk to girls a little better or learn how to not be so irritated by my parents or learn how to make my way in the world. And that was full of hope because you can't do anything about the past. The past is hopeless. Even the moment is what it is as it arises just before it passes away. But the future, so-called the undiscovered country, It's full of possibility, including the possibility that each day we can develop ourselves. What's great about that is that no one can stop you from learning every day in the broad sense I'm using for the term learning. On the other hand, what gives it credibility and authenticity is that no one can do it for you. Only you can learn for yourself every day. So that's what I mean by learn every day. And as you know from my material, the process of that has two necessary stages. First, we have to experience whatever we want to grow inside ourselves greater grit, greater sobriety, greater mindfulness. We have to experience it. We have to feel it. And then second necessary step in the change process, we have to turn that experience into a physical change in the body. Otherwise, by definition, it was a passing moment, but there's no lasting residue inside. 
And that physical change primarily occurs inside the brain in terms of neural structure and function. So that's where staying with a useful experience for a breath or two or longer really helps to hardwire it into yourself. Neurons that fire together, wire together. The classic saying, the longer they're firing, the more they're going to tend to be wiring again and again and again. Also feel it in your body. A moment of gratitude, a moment of accomplishment, a feeling of your own worth and value, maybe while being with another person or just kind of on your own, whatever it might be. Try to feel it in your body. That also is going to increase what's called experience-dependent neuroplasticity and really help the experience sink in. And last, try to focus on what's rewarding about it. If you highlight what's enjoyable or meaningful about the sense of accomplishing the dishes or finally getting your kids to bed or a spiritual insight even or whatever it might be, the more that you focus on what's enjoyable or meaningful about it, the more that increases activity of dopamine and norepinephrine in your brain these neurochemicals. And the more those increase, the more that the experiences we're having at the time are flagged and prioritized for protection in long-term storage. It may sound a little complicated, but it's very intuitive. We all know how to take in the good. You don't have to do all three of these things. There are other details you can get into if you know my material and different applications, but the essence is really simple. The two-stage process of helping yourself change for the better in little ways every day is summarized as have the experience and then enjoy it as you receive it into yourself. So that's how to learn every day. And I also like the idea that you can approach each thing as an opportunity for emotional learning so that if something really difficult is happening, often I might say to myself, what is my opportunity to learn something new here? What opportunity is this creating for me? It's the opportunity to take in what we can learn from this experience. Yeah. This is probably one of the handful of core teachings from the Buddhist tradition 2,500 years ago in its origins, the radical impermanence of our experiences and the mainly impermanent nature on a long time scale, certainly, of even physical reality is impermanent. So there's this funny intersection in which we are moving through time. It's changing moment by moment by moment. The past is gone as soon as it arises. I think there's a quotation from Francis Bacon, a great scientist, in which he said, basically, we have only this moment uh, sparkling like a star in our hand and melting like a snowflake. It's passing. And yet we can help this moment as it passes through us to leave lasting beneficial residues behind that we feel. And we carry with us increasingly wherever we go. So increasingly, as we internalize, let's say, feelings of calm strength, we grow the trait of calm strength, which then you have inside yourself as you meet the next challenging moment. You can grow the trait of contentment broadly so that even as you dream big dreams and deal with challenges in the world, there's an underlying sense of fullness already. And also, we can grow the trait of feeling loved and loving. We can develop that more and more inside ourselves. So we have that at the core of our being, even as we're dealing with situations, let's say, that are hurtful or have conflict in them, or we're feeling aggrieved about something. And to me, that's the great opportunity. And it's really quite profound if you get into a depth to be simultaneously present with the passingness of experience, while also having a kind of humble intimacy with it as you receive it way down deep inside you. And I think one of the really neat benefits of that is that as we actually receive experiences into ourselves so that increasingly over time we feel filled up from the inside out, that reduces our tendencies toward craving, toward chasing pleasures or fighting pain or clinging to other people. And it helps us have, therefore, a lighter footprint on the world and to be able to be with others in a way that's more benevolent and nurturing and full of enlightened self-interest. Because as we reduce our footprint on other people, they tend to treat us better in turn. Okay, I have a million questions inside of that, but I think I'll move on to number four so we can get through them because this is so fascinating. And I think each lesson or each tool that you are suggesting, you could write a whole book on each one. So there's a lot more there. And I think some of this is in your Foundations of Wellbeing course that's starting on January 1st, if people wanted to get deeply into these. And you're right. The Foundations of Wellbeing program pulls it together in a super organized way. And I appreciate you mentioning it. Yeah, it sounds so interesting. So tell me number four. 
It's neat that I'm just improving it here. It's great. The number four catchy, maybe headline is us all Dems. What do I mean by that? Us all Dems, right? I'll enter it this way. Martin Buber in his book, I and Thou, offered this fundamental paradigm of relationships. You may know it already in which he says there are three basic kinds of relationships. And he called them I-thou, I-it, and it-it. And I-thou, like right now, you and I are in an I-thou frame. We're not exploiting each other. We may not be best friends. We may not know each other our whole lives. And in this moment, there's a sense of feeling each other as beings. You know, what's the sense of the being behind the eyes? And we're not exploiting each other and using each other as means to our own ends. Okay, that's I-thou. And the I-thou-ness of something, of course, can vary depending on the scale. You can have an I-thou interaction with a hot dog vendor on the street for a minute or two. And you can also have an I-thou relationship with your child or your partner over the course of your entire life. Then there's I-it. That's where we use people as means to our ends. Sometimes it's okay. You're interacting, let's say, with someone on the phone that is in customer service. You're trying to make a reservation for an airline. You're just moving through the interaction. All right. Often, though, I-it relationships become exploitive, where we just really don't care about them, and we're going to use them up and spit them out and extract value from them along the way. Too bad for them. And then there's it-it, just bodies in space, moving past each other on a street or standing next to each other in an elevator. It's really useful to observe your own mind. And watch what it feels like first to be itted by another person. And you can feel it kind of quickly when they're really not listening to you or they're there to push their own agenda. You don't matter to them or they don't even recognize the reality of your own inner world or your own entitlement to your needs being met in the family or the company or the relationship. You can feel it. When they're being all friendly sometimes, that's kind of the worst. When you're being worked by them or sold by them under the pretense of them actually caring, but they don't really care. We know what it's like to feel at it. Similarly, it's really useful in real time, mindfully, to observe the process of itting others, turning them into two-dimensional, even caricatures of full beings. So we have this tendency... As soon as we identify another person, let's say, as like me and us, like where we have the same fill-in-the-blank political views, interest in meditation, gender, age, social class, we naturally tend to think well of them and want to empathize with them and be helpful with them. A lot of research on this. On the other hand, we are so prone to categorizing others as not like me, not my age, not my type. And you can see this scaled up at the level in politics currently and certainly throughout history on the world stage. And so we have this tendency that's rooted in our Stone Age brain to love us, fear, and hate them. We can overcome that tendency. There are instances where hunter-gatherer bands tended to cooperate with each other. So what do we do with that today? I think one of the things that's really useful at the personal level in 2019 is to look for ways in which as you move through your day that you can see similarities between yourself and other people as an ongoing practice. Maybe you see this person walking down the street, you don't know them. Take 20 seconds to kind of look at them or a single breath, half a dozen seconds to get a sense of, wow, like me, your back hurts. Like me, you worry about your kids. Like me, you like cupcakes. Like me, you too will face disease, old age, and death one day. And as you do that, you can expand the circle of us so that it becomes wider and wider and wider. It doesn't mean giving up your rights. doesn't mean not pursuing justice against certain others who, in your view, deserve justice. But it does mean that even with people that are challenging and difficult, you grow your sense of common humanity, common ground, which in addition to its personal benefits, in giving you information about others that's useful in working with them or living together with them. Also lowering your own stress level because then we don't feel so threatened and attacked in ways that are exaggerated by those that are not like us. Also in terms of enlightened self-interest, as we see others more as us, we tend to act more skillfully and benevolently toward them. And then they tend to, it's not perfect, but they tend to treat us better in turn. In addition to this personal level of benefits, if you just think about it, at the world stage over the next century, not just the coming year. I think the capacity to us all thems 
is absolutely central to how the human tribe as a whole manages the challenges together of the 21st century. And if we don't find a way to all work together in the challenges we face, including global climate change, we're not going to get anything else right. But if we do get this right, if we do learn increasingly how to view all of humanity as a single tribe in which we have conflicts, we have disagreements, we have politics, that's okay, but we're all and us together here. If we get that right, then I think we're going to get everything right as well. No, I like that very much. I mean, to tap into our common humanity as a way to deepen Mm -hmm. empathy and compassion for people who don't seem like us, I think is a really important thing for us to learn. Okay, so number five. So to kind of just reset, we've talked about, it's sort of like pull out of the negative preoccupations. Yep. Second, let it flow. Third, learn as you go. Fourth, us, all thems. And then if I were to offer one more that's more and more meaningful for me personally, open to awe. That feeling you get when you're standing there on the seashore and you look up at the stars, maybe the feeling you get when you see a picture of some galaxy far away or when you just observe the beauty of a single grain of sand or you interact with your daughter's cat who has come to visit us during this holiday season (laughs) with our daughter from 3,000 miles away. And you recognize that there's actually an active consciousness inside that other being over there. Awe of any kind. There's new research of uh, especially spearheaded by one of, I would say, my own mentors, Dacher Keltner, UC Berkeley professor, founder of the Greater Good Science Center there, wonderful researcher and wonderful person. People can actually check out his work on awe. Literally, the National Institute of Health, I think, is funding these significant studies on experiences of awe, factors of awe, and how to draw upon awe to be less self-centered and less contracted. And as you kind of said earlier, to explore even the intersection of awe and joy, because I think they often will go together. I feel a lot of sort of what I would call awestruck gratitude. That would be my fifth suggestion as a practice. for. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's why we love to travel so much to really unique places and to see the seven wonders of the world and to see these things that aren't part of our everyday lives. And maybe it is a bit of being awestruck and just seeing things from a completely new perspective that has a really positive impact on our brains. Yes. There's a saying, beginner's mind's end mind. Beginner's mind. It's like a child. Think of us, each of us. Amazing. So the fifth one is open to awe, which is so beautiful. And I want to ask you just one final question, which is on some of your writings, you include what you call motivation boosting practices. Mm -hmm. I know you've mentioned a lot here, but as we're trying to boost our motivation, change our habits, Mm -hmm. are there any particular suggestions you have for creating more abundance, motivating ourselves towards change. I would have a lot of things I could say about it. And so I'll keep it super to the point and super short. Yeah, exactly. That's a really key question. Before I go into that, though, I want to restate these five and I up with a better way of describing the very first one in a memorable way. Drop the stone. Drop that stone. Drop it. Just drop that stone. We know what it's like to carry a heavy weight and to close our fist around it and have that contraction around it. That's what useless worry is like. That's what resentment is like. That's what carrying around inappropriate shame is like. We're carrying it with us and that stone weighs us down and it narrows our field of life because we have the weight upon us. So that would be the way I would say the first one. Okay, Drop beautiful. The stone. Okay. And then to finish the other four, drop the stone, let it flow, learn as you go. <laughs> learn as you and go. That's right. Us all thems and open to all. Good. Perfect. All right, motivation. Well, that's really key. Yeah, you may know this saying from the world of therapists. How many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> Only one. But the light bulb has to want to change. It's so central, right? So you're really talking here about how do we help ourselves want what's good for us and probably others that we don't naturally easily want. Because if we easily wanted it, we wouldn't have to think about how to motivate ourselves, right? This is a fundamental crux issue. And I would really just offer 
two suggestions about it out of a lot of material. And you're right, in the Foundations of Wellbeing, we actually have uh, one fundamental of the 12 strengths that we explore over the course of the year. One of them is called motivation. And then I bring in a lot of practical neuropsychology about that, as well as some deep wisdom about aspiration without attachment. What I would say right now, these two things I'll just say, first, a way you can really help yourself be more motivated is to use these ancient circuits in your brain that involve dopamine, essentially, in which before doing that which you want to motivate yourself to do, and by the way, it could be motivating yourself to do something else than what you want to stop doing. So let's say you want to stop snacking between meals. That's what you want to stop doing. But to replace that which you want to stop doing, you want to do something different. So that's what you're motivating yourself toward. Before doing it, imagine doing it while simultaneously feeling rewards of one kind or another, like feeling good about yourself or opening into a greater well-being, a greater happiness, imagining how other people will respect you for not indulging that negative habit or respect you for starting to exercise, if that's useful to you. Whatever it might be, imagine doing what you want to motivate while simultaneously inside your brain, this is where you're using the simulator for a good purpose here, feeling, imagining feeling as much as you can what would be really good about this new thing you want to motivate. And that will naturally, since neurons that fire together, wire together, it will naturally associate the anticipation of reward with whatever you want to motivate. This is a fundamental structure of creating a new habit. Second, while you're doing whatever you want to motivate, focus on the rewards of it. Feel them, marinate in them, <laughs> savor them, take in the good, take that extra breath or two or three to sink into it. Open to the rewarding feelings in your body, as I said earlier. Third, focus and highlight what does feel juicy, sweet, pleasurable, meaningful, inspiring even about whatever you're trying to motivate yourself toward. That too will increase the associations in your brain. And then after doing it, when you get off the treadmill, in my own case, or after you get through a day and you haven't had a drink and you want to maintain your sobriety, or you've managed to untangle from a typical script-like negative interaction with your partner or your in-laws, or you've untangled from that after doing it, reflect on what was good about it. Reflect on the rewards of it, feel them again, and recommit afterward to what you want to keep on doing in the future. That little method, the three steps there, very fundamental. It's baked into what's called operant conditioning and psychology. There's a kind of behaviorism aspect to it that is supported by thousands of studies on humans and non-human animals. And we can hack that motivational system inside ourselves by doing those three little things. So that's my first suggestion. Second thing I would really suggest, it's to make the point that little things add up over time. Do not okay. underestimate the power of little things. And very often, if you want to make something different happen in your life, the way to do it, and again, it sounds cliched, and yet most cliches are full of profound wisdom. Right. We kind of dismiss them because they're cliches, and yet they're really, really deeply true. Right. The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. It's that whole idea of little things sustained over time, which really struck me. In terms of the big dreams that people have, like they want to develop a new business or move into a different career or find their soulmate or grow their podcast, they want to develop something or maybe they want to reset their family system and move to a sort of a more peaceful, less contentious, less quarrelsome or tense uh, home environment, whatever it might be. If you bring to bear 15 minutes a day, or maybe people want to cultivate greater well-being or more serenity or resilience or inner peace, 15 minutes a day, half an hour a day, more if you want, but averaging that small increment day after day after day will really move you forward. And a way to understand it is, just to kind of keep it simple, if you give something, let's say average half an hour a day, maybe you deliberately go to bed half an hour earlier so you can get up half an hour earlier before the madness begins in your living situation or your commute to work. And take that half hour to fill in the blank, exercise, work on your poetry, meditate, start banging away at the paragraphs, which become sections, which become chapters for your book. 
that half hour a day, one way or another, and maybe some days you skip it and you pick up a couple hours over the weekend, you're averaging half an hour a day. It may not seem like very much. That's 150 hours a year. That's basically a month of work full time to move something forward. We're going to give you an extra month every year to manifest your dreams, to really make good things happen in your life. Imagine what you could do with that month. Well, that month is the result of just half an hour a day over the course of a year. So that would be my second main suggestion. Do small things, but consistently and have confidence that they will build over time. It's the discipline and the consistency that helps you really move from one level to the next. And I think sometimes we forget that when we're doing something like meditating or practicing some of these different exercises, we may forget that these are also having an impact or they're also providing us with the resources and the capacity to manage complicated or difficult situations when they occur but you don't see that necessarily when you're practicing. So I like that little things add up over time. I think that seems like a universal truth. You're exactly right. And to be blunt, as a long time therapist, it's made me more compassionate, but I think it's also made me kind of more direct. And I see often situations where people put a lot of effort into things they don't care much about. And yet (laughs) day to day, they don't put much effort into what they really, really do care about. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, I've known people who come in and they say, well, I hate my job. I don't like my career. And you explore it for a while. And then at some point you ask, what are you doing to make things different? Are you working on your resume? Are you looking for new work? Are you going on job sites? Are you asking around? Or people who want to be in true love. They want a deep relationship. Great. What are you doing about that? Mm, Nothing, right? Staying at home and grumbling. Well... I get it. And there's a natural rhythm where we hunker down and kind of repair and refuel inside ourselves. But at some point, there's a lot of life that's honestly about action. Mm. What are the actions you take? What are the actions you deliberately restrain? And the benefits of the actions of thought, word, and deed inside our minds with our mouths or and our bodies, those actions, both expressed or restrained, really build the structure of our life over time. Then other factors come in, bad luck, misfortune, mistreatment, lack of privilege, things like that, uh, those matter as well. And yet fundamentally, as people look ahead to this new year, which is a wonderful frame for this conversation, there are so many fruits that can come to us if we just take the action every day of watering the fruit tree. We can't control the results, but we can tend to the causes every day. And we can both be at peace about the results because so many other factors will determine outcome besides our own efforts. That's true. While at the same time, we can rest in the feeling of virtue and self-worth in taking responsibility for the causes we can indeed tend to each day. Which is so beautiful. And I think that's a good way to tie a lot of this up in that we are asking you, what does it take? to feel happier. I think that a lot of happiness is really tied to actually how we feel inside of us and not so much tied to what's going on outside of us, but maybe more of our reactions or the way that we respond to things. And these tools that you're providing are really all about the things that we can control. That's totally true. And that's very much your own work. And obviously, the external world really matters. And it can matter really intensely if yeah. you're a refugee, let's say, running for your life. Right. Um, and the external world is going to have a high impact on you. On average, easily over half of the causes of our moment-to-moment experience of living are rooted in our own minds, in our own psychology, our own attitudes, and, our, and the efforts we make inside our minds. And in the resources and strengths that we actually grow inside our minds over time. So you're exactly right. And and also, I think that's where we have the most influence inside our own minds, generally. Right. We take the fruits with us wherever we go. So that's a good reason to do both. Take action as best we can in the external world, including in our relationships and scaled up the level of society and politics and so forth, while at the same time, engaging in personal practice. Yeah. And I think my next interview with you is going to focus on 
how we take our practices into relationship. Cause I think that that's mm. a whole other really important topic and can also help us to be happier and more content as we move on with our lives. Yeah. That's a great field of exploration. One way into that that really interests me, especially lately, is what I call the strong heart, the intersection of compassion and assertiveness, in which we're both ushing, as it were, the other people that we're struggling with, while simultaneously really sticking up for ourselves in effective ways with other people and how to do that. So that would be great to talk about. I look forward to talking Yeah, about I would love that. Do you want to mention anything about the strong heart practice now to give oh, us... Oh, a teaser maybe, a little thing. <laughs> a little yeah. teaser. I could say a lot. I think a couple quick headlines. The foundation of we is me. And by the way, I don't normally talk in such a soundbitey way. I don't know what's going on with me today. You're bringing it out of me. I think it's a good thing. But anyway, Sorry. in other words, if you think of these two great dimensions in human life, could be summarized in their more formal ways in psychological research as autonomy and intimacy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or maybe a little glibly, me and we. And if we want to enter into a really wonderful we of healthy, fulfilling, intimate relationships, it's paradoxically really foundational to grow a strong sense of me, of being entitled to seeing what you see, wanting what you want, and choosing what you choose. And here too, it may seem so simple and cliched, and yet my longtime experience with a lot of people here, I'm going to make a generalization, it's a little tricky, but that said, especially women, given the standard socialization that girls and women go through, it's not necessarily established inside a person that they feel the right to see what they really see, at least to know it for themselves, because that's often undermined and attacked in families and relationships, even in countries, especially if they're under some kind of authoritarian rule. Second, to want what you want, that your wants matter, they have equal footing, equal standing with others, doesn't mean you're going to push other people around, but it does mean that it's a level playing field. And then last, that you have the right to choose what you choose. Of course, that's in a context of virtue and morality and skillfulness. That said, fundamentally, just like they get the right to choose what they choose, including to enter into a relationship or to pull out of it, you get to choose what you choose as well. So I think that would be just a kind of a headline to pay attention to. Very often, what looks like an intimacy issue is really at root an autonomy issue. Mm -hmm. including with some people who, as you said earlier, maybe they're very sensitive in relationships. Actually, again, to generalize, many men are actually this way. They're very affected by the feelings of their partner, but they're so affected that they're flooded. They don't know what to do with it. So they distance to manage the fact that they're flooded by these feelings, or they get angry and contentious to manage these feelings, which looks like an attack on intimacy, but it actually is at the bottom the result of not having a stable base of autonomy inside that can tolerate the intensity of the partner or the feelings that get stirred up inside themselves. So paradoxically, it goes to the proverb, fences make for good neighbors. As we look at and make sure that we've developed a solid resource of autonomy, that is something to really look at, I think, in terms of intimacy broadly defined. So that would be my first headline suggestion. Are you saying that they get flooded with their partner's feelings because they're not used to having that range of feelings themselves? So they're overwhelmed by yeah, these external right. feelings. They don't have that same feeling range that a lot of women have generally. With repeating the caveat about generalizing about yes, genders of, of course. the field, that said, yeah, very often I'll see as someone, I've done a lot of couples counseling, where the complaint about the man is that he's distancing. So it draws the woman into the classic dynamic of pursuer distancer, which becomes a vicious cycle. And yet at bottom, now some guys are not good guys. All right. But right. Often, okay. <laughs> good to know. Yeah, duh. <laughs> pretty obvious, huh? <laughs> Let's suppose that is, I often will see that it, at heart, there's a good heart in this man and he's just flooded. And actually he cares so much about his partner that when she's upset about something, he wants to make it better. So he then starts moving into problem solving rather than staying in relationship talk or feeling talk. 
or he gets so flooded with even the least bit of intensity from her that he wants to shut her down or he just withdraws to manage his own internal mm-hmm. feelings, which might involve, I think, as you were getting at, um, stirring up feelings of his own. So he's doubly flooded. Right. And it's not that she's doing anything wrong. She's just kind of on the zero to 10 intensity scale. She's at a two about something that bothered her. But wow, for him, it's, you know, hits the preamp inside him or there are no filters. So boom, it feels like a nine. And it's just overwhelming. And then it might as well stir up stuff inside himself. So this is not always the case, but it's often the case that to really understand why the partner, let's say, is doing so much distancing, which seems like an undermining of intimacy, it's actually because they don't have strong resources already of autonomy. And if they had more of a felt sense inside of stability so that they can remain present with another person without being overwhelmed by them, or without feeling like they're giving up their own needs or rights to really listen to the needs and wants of their partner. If they had more of that capacity, they could stay in place better. They could lean in rather than leave the room when they're in an uncomfortable interaction. That is a great little preview for our next interview. (laughs) I'll leave it there. Rick, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm so excited to have this interview on happiness for the start of the new year for everyone. And I wish you the best 2019 ever. Well, thank you, Patricia. And as a bit of a bonus, maybe for 2019, I want to comment on you a little bit, which is I'm noticing that you have this wonderful capacity to draw out what's good in other people. You're doing that with me. I'm sure you do it with other people. And I think recognizing the beauty and value of that capacity in people in general, including listening here, that capacity to see the good in others and to see the potential value there and to be open to it and to be encouraging of the expression of it is a wonderful gift that we can offer to others this coming year It's a gift that, of course, will benefit us individually. And it's, I think, in many ways, right at the heart of being human, to see the good in other beings and to welcome it and invite it and to feed it along the way. Well, thank you so much. That was a really sweet comment. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thanks so much to Rick for being on Untangle today. You can find all of his books at all major booksellers. And if you have a minute... Would you give us a review or rating? It helps to get the word out. And if you have feedback for suggestions or guests, email us at patricia at meditationstudioapp.com. And don't forget to download Meditation Studio in the App Store. We'll see you next time.